This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 7070, recorded on October 27th, 2017, almost Halloween. I'm your host, Tim Cripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here along with co-host Ryan Roberts. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, good to see you. And Neelay Shaw. Always happy to be here. All right. Today we have a guest with us. From Washington University in St. Louis, Dr. Josh Rubin. Welcome, Josh. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, so you're the co-director of the neuro-oncology program there, and tell us some of your other titles, because there was a lot of them in that <laughs> introduction. <laughs> well, my family refers to me as Senor Dos Esposas. Um, and the translation being? Dr. Two Wives. <laughs> oh, oh, that sounds like an interesting topic for conversation. I think that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> uh, but well, we watching... are talking about sex today. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. But um, my only other title, actually, is... Uh, co-leader of the Solid Tumor Therapeutics Program at the Alvin J. Seitman Cancer Center at Washington University. Great, and you've been there a long time, but uh, so how long has it? 20? 14 years. 14 years, okay. Before we get into the topic of the day, which should interest many, and I got to tell you, so one of the joys about coming to work is every day I learn something new, and your presentation today was (laughs) mind-blowing because it's things we don't think about, right? I mean... No, absolutely. How many... Years have we all been in the business, and we know we treat male leukemia patients for three years, but females for two years. And have we ever asked why? I don't, I don't know if you know the history of that, but right. you know, oh my goodness, it was sort of mind blowing. So that's just a preview for our listening audience. But why don't we start with um, how you got into the business? When, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? What, what sort of influenced you along the way to get into this work? Okay, well, I grew up in Ardsley, New York which is a relatively small town just north of New York City, near the Hudson River. My father was a physicist. My mother was a school teacher. Science was a huge part of daily life in my house, um, as well as music and art. Uh, Both my brother and sister are artists. And at an early age, I found myself much more interested in biology than physical sciences. And in fact, I can trace my interest to neuroscience, to a Life magazine in which there were pictures of the human brain, which I just found myself looking at, looking at, looking at, looking at, and decided at a pretty young age that um, I was going to be a neuroscientist. In fact, there is a recording of me when I'm in high school, and I was a guest on a local radio station because I had won a fiction writing contest, (laughs) and the host of that uh, show asked me what was in the future, and I just said brain research. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> it turned out to be the case. <laughs> you knew what you wanted to do. That's awesome. Um, and so I, I, you know, went to college. Ultimately, went to graduate school, medical school, with the intent of being a neuroscientist. But discovered oncology when I was a pediatric resident in Boston Children's Hospital. There was just something about the oncology patients that um, really attracted me to them. And I think you know that for all of us pediatric oncologists, that was 
the way. I know it's hard to explain to anybody else, but I know that each of you knows what I'm talking about. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, and the brain tumor patients in particular were um, kids that I really liked taking care of, and I liked thinking about um, their disease. I liked thinking about the way it affected their development. I like thinking about um, the challenges in treating them. Uh, I'll never forget sort of our first orientation meeting when I was at Children's in Boston and Steve Salen got up to all the new fellows and said, you know, the future is in brain tumor research. So that's where, you know, the frontier is and to encourage us all to, all to go into it and I shied away from it. But <laughs> <laughs> you, you answered the we, call. We all have uh, our own proclivities. <laughs> that's that's right. right. My response to that was, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you already knew it. And were there any patients or mentors that were, you know, especially influential in your, your career development? Yeah, I would say there are many. Uh, I mean, in general oncology, there was Steve Salen himself. But in neuro-oncology, there was Mark Kieran, um, who had just recently been appointed the head of the neuro-oncology program when I was a fellow, and um, working with Mark at that point was just tremendous. There was Raz Siegel, um, in whose lab I did my um, postdoc, and there was Chuck Stiles, who was the uh, chair of cancer biology there, who just was tremendously influential on me and just in terms of scientific development, thinking about science, thinking about translational science, thinking about um, brain tumors. You seem to be making a career, at least recently, regarding the gender differences of cancer. Uh, how did you get into that? What, what led to that? What was the sort of light bulb moment for you? Well, uh, it's actually um, a very easily identifiable moment. I mentioned during my talk interest in cyclic AMP and the role that cyclic AMP plays in regulating uh, growth and potentially tumorigenesis. And an experiment that we were doing was to try and create foci in the mouse brain of low levels of cyclic AMP to see if we can induce tumors in a mouse model of NF1-associated tumors. So could we change the pattern of tumor formation in that mouse model? Those mice uh, stereotypically get... Um, tumors in the optic chiasm and pre-optic, uh, pre-chiasmatic optic nerves. And we thought if we could create foci of low levels of cyclic AMP, we could make ectopic tumors form, which turned out to be the case, except it wasn't in 100% of the mice. And I was really bothered by the fact that it wasn't in 100% of the mice. These are genetically identical mice. Why wouldn't 100% of the mice get tumors? And as you could probably guess, it was the male mice getting tumors and not the female mice. And that started this whole line of investigation. What's a little bit remarkable to me about that story is that you actually were testing both genders. Because in our research, usually we just order female mice because they're easy to take <laughs> care of. And we don't usually have and a less mixture. Cranky. Less cranky. <laughs> we, we don't usually have both of them in our experiments. Was that on purpose to look for differences or was that just random because you get a litter, you were breeding your own, and you get a litter of both sexes or how did that come about? Well, it was because we were injecting young mice. So we were just taking whole litters. You're just taking whole them. litters, yeah. So uh, the other question I really was burning to ask you during your seminar, but we ran out of time, was are you responsible for us having to do gen- both genders, the new <laughs> NIH rules? <laughs> I am In all not, our experiments. <laughs> but I am a big fan of it. I wonder if I could make uh, a statement about the use of gender in sex. If Please, I could. Do. Please do. I think it's important uh, in an era, 
particularly when we have so many public discussions about gender identity, to recognize that sex is the word that refers to biology and gender is a word that refers to how people think about um, themselves. It's a social construct. And so particularly when talking about mice, I prefer to use the word sex. I think in most cases when we're talking about biology in humans, that's what's appropriate as well, though it would be possible to collect data in humans by asking patients what their gender is and correlating that with them. Again, I come to work every day and learn something. I did not appreciate that nuance. <laughs> I was always more comfortable saying the okay. word gender. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, what sort of struck you most about his presentation today? Oh, I think, uh, I, I mean, I've followed some of the data about um, the, compet the competition between females and males in terms of reproduction, right, um, in, in other species and biological platforms, but I never really thought of it in terms of cancer, and I think it makes a lot of sense. So I, I, th I thought it was really cool how you showed um, in, in your data that these same physiologic processes that drive our need to reproduce affect our proclivities towards towards development of cancer what is in all the work that you've done what has been your favorite finding what what gets keeps you coming back to work <laughs> to keep doing this kind of stuff that's because we all have those things that are like oh yeah that's so cool right <laughs> that's a great question so in fact it's this difference in enhancer usage mm -hmm. this just I know it's not that surprising. I mean, once you look at biology and it's different, and once you look at gene expression and it's different, of course, in enhancer usage must be different. But to actually document that cells of the same lineage that we ordinarily would have thought of as much more the same are so different in their enhancer usage, their gene expression, and their phenotype is just remarkable to me. And What's exciting to me about that, and in response to your question, what I think currently is driving me is the desire to understand what sets that up. Because something sets up those different patterns of uh, enhancer usage. Presumably, it's going to turn out to be um, sex differences in transcription factor expression or some other chromatin modifying. Yeah. You know, on some level, with as striking as some of those differences are, it's amazing that we're as alike as we are between the sexes, right? Oh, men are from Mars and Venus. Well, actually, you know, I apologize. Can you can you expand on that? Our, our listenership is quite broad, yeah. and uh, and particularly for the trainees, you know, like uh, I, I know for a lot of trainees who are not deep into science. And certainly for the families, you know, they're just now getting used to understanding what a gene promoter is. Can you talk a little bit about what a gene enhancer is oh, sure. and how that, that's being directed? Be before that, we probably ought to even back up one further step yeah. and say, what, what, is, what did he show at the beginning? You know, what's yep. different between males and females, different rates and um, treatment responses, yep. particularly in brain cancers? Sure. So um, to just summarize, I think that the high points of um, what I hope were the high points of what I <laughs> talked about today... Um, were one, that uh, the frequency with which males and females get cancers of specific types uh, is different um, throughout all the different stages of life. Um, and all species that and, we know of, right? Humans, mice, etc. And mostly males get more cancer. Well, overall males get more cancer than females do, and overall males die from cancer more uh, 
frequently than females do. There are specific cancers that occur more commonly in females, um, of course breast cancer and GYN cancers, but in addition meningioma occurs more commonly in females, um, pituitary tumors occur more commonly in females, but otherwise um, for almost all other cancers they occur more commonly in males. And the question is why is that so and what are the clinical implications of that? Um, does that mean that the biology of male and female cancers are different? And if the biology is different, should we be treating males and females differently? Um, as Tim brought up as we were talking just before, um, we as pediatric, as pediatric oncologists are used to treating boys and girls with leukemia differently. We treat boys for longer than we treat girls. And as Tim correctly said, we do that frequently without ever asking why that's so. And generally, I, honestly, you know, we're, we're I, I was always taught the dogma is just about the testes that the, that you know, like that that's why. But that, but your work suggests it's not that simple. It's probably not that simple. Yeah. I mean, it is possible that in leukemia, the fact that the testes can be a sanctuary site means you have to treat a boy longer than a girl. But you know, I would venture to say that that's an untested hypothesis. Sure. <laughs> um, and that, in fact, the data that we talked about today would suggest there might be other processes involved. And so among the data that I showed today um, was that in a mouse model of glioblastoma, we could measure differences in the ease with which we could turn a normal cell into a cancer cell. In this case, it was a kind of brain cell known as an astrocyte, which is the normal counterpart of the cell that uh, becomes the cancer cell in glioblastoma and other astrocytomas. So it was easier to make male astrocytes into male astrocytoma cells than it was to make female astrocytes into female astrocytoma cells. And we were able to identify a number of important um, pathways in male and female cells that differed, that we think contribute to that difference um, in cancer vulnerability, susceptibility. They included differences in metabolism. They included differences in uh, the regulation of cell division, one cell becoming two, two becoming four, four becoming eight. They included differences in the way that cells in a dish respond to chemotherapy. Uh, for a number of chemotherapeutics, it was easier to kill the male cells than it was to kill the female cells. That was fascinating, by the way. <laughs> I thought that was really, really interesting. Thank you. And we explored the basis for that, um, or are exploring the basis for that, uh, with regard to gene expression, in that everything a cell can do is determined by which genes it expresses and how much of each of those genes it expresses. It comes as no surprise that when we look at male and female cells that they differ in uh, gene expression. And we want to understand why that's so and what the mechanisms are that support those differences. And I think that the importance of asking those questions and trying to answer those questions is, is in part the fascinating biology, but it's, it's also about could we be doing better by tailoring our treatments specifically for male biology and specifically for female biology if we understood the differences in those biologies. So we started to talk about these enhancer elements. Um, and these are uh, elements in the DNA that regulate the expression or the production of specific genes. Genes have a number of components to them. They have the coding um, 
portion of them. That's the part that actually determines the amino acid sequence of the protein that's produced. And then there are the regulatory elements that determine when those genes are expressed and how much of those genes are expressed. There's a part of every gene known as the promoter, which is where the machinery that has to make transcribe the, the gene and make the messenger RNA interact and bind uh, with the gene. And then there are a series of other elements known as enhancers that determine how the gene and the regulation of its uh, expression um, will be coupled to the external stimuli or the environment that's going to determine the appropriateness really of gene expression. So you can imagine that a cell that's stressed in a particular way will need to increase the expression of a set of genes that will help it deal with the stressor. And the response to that stressor will usually involve an enhancer element that's capable of sensing the stress and in response to sensing that stress increase the gene expression or uh, of the gene that will be important for dealing with the stress. So in the case of DNA damage enhancers that regulate the expression of the genes that will repair the DNA. And among the things that's been known for a, a very long time um, in a variety of settings but not previously really talked about with regard to cancer biology is the fact that male and female cells can be poised to respond to stress very differently. Um, there is a lot of data about in utero stressors and the response of placenta and response of fetuses to those in utero stressors, stressors like nutrient deprivation in times of famine, stressors like smoking, stressors like maternal illness. And it's clear that male and female placentas respond differently to that and that the fetuses respond differently to that. And presumably that's going to involve differences in these enhancer um, elements. And we found that enhancer usage in male and female astrocytes and astrocytes homocells um, was different. That's not surprising in one hand. Their gene expression is different and their, their growth is different. Um, their vulnerability to becoming cancers are different. It has to be driven by something. But what's really interesting is knowing that now and being able to measure it and being able to follow it can we identify the organizing factors for it? Can we determine when during development those different patterns of enhancer usage are established? Um, we know that from the time of fertilization, male and female um, developing embryos are different. When during the course of time does the cancer risk get established as different? And those are experiments that we are really excited to are there any of the uh, cancer predisposition syndromes that are significantly different in terms of their risk? That's a great question. So we have been trying to gather data uh, regarding Lee-Fraumini. So Lee-Fraumini is a germline mutation in the master tumor suppressor P53. We have a lot of data to indicate that there are sex differences in p53 activity. There are other data about p53 
uh, functioning differently during uh, normal neural development in mice and rats and functioning differently in aging models in Drosophila, actually. And in Leafrau mini, overall more females get cancer, but that's in part because of the very high rate of breast cancer in individuals with Leafrau mini. There are a large number of other cancers they get, and it's not been easy, actually, to determine in a cancer-specific way, particularly a glioblastoma-specific way, what the rate of glioblastoma is in males and females with Leafrau mini. This shouldn't be difficult, but in fact, it's been difficult. Um, there is at least one report that for first and for second brain tumors in individuals with Leafrau mini, that males are at risk, at greater risk for both first and second tumors. Um, there are data about uh, sex-specific effects of polymorphisms in p53 and polymorphisms in MDN2. Um, and I spoke with Jonathan Finley here while I was here about uh, the need for us to critically acquire data about brain tumors in Leafrau mini. Um, and so Jonathan and I, and he suggested that we involve Josh Schiffman in Utah, um, and maybe David Malkin at University of Toronto, um, in trying to really critically put that data together um, to determine whether or not there is a difference. Um, so I don't know the answer yet. I suspect there will be based on the data that we have. Um, and also based on the frequency of specific p53 mutations in glioblastoma um, in um, data from the Cancer Genome Atlas. So while there are a number of mutations that occur with equal frequency in males and females, there's a subset of mutations that are statistically significantly more common in males and another subset are that are statistically significantly more common in females, suggesting that at least for some of those mutations, there's a different growth advantage in the context of a male cell versus a female cell. Clearly, there are a lot of differences in the genesis of different kinds of cancers and the initial thinking and as you mentioned was oh it's all hormonal and uh, you, you're mentioning uh, breast cancer in, in Leafrau mini patients reminded me of this and your arguments for it not being all hormonal are uh, one that these differences persist throughout life so not just peak you know, during times of puberty or other major hormonal changes but also the fact that you found all these differences in just single cells cell lines uh, you know isolated from different animals in which there are no differences in the hormonals or the ex environmental influences. Are there any other rationale about why the differences are not just all hormonal? Both the epidemiologic data, meaning that there are differences across all stages of life, and that the experimental data, meaning that we can see these differences even in a dish in the absence of um, any sex hormones would argue for a cell intrinsic sex hormone acute sex hormone independent effect. There is one other piece of data that I, I mentioned in the talk, but um, um, probably should mention again now. In our model, we don't see any difference in in vivo tumor growth when we implant either male or female cells into male or female mice. The sex of the recipient mouse doesn't appear to influence um, the growth 
of our tumors. I want to stress our tumors because I don't know whether that would be the case in other models of glioblastoma and certainly other cancers. And I think the other important thing to mention here is that we do almost all of those experiments, and certainly the data I'm talking about refers to these experiments in which we injected the cells into immunocompromised mice. And of course, among the great sex differences in, in normal human health and in human disease is sex differences in immune response. Females have much higher rates of autoimmune disease, rheumatologic disease with uh, immune or inflammatory components. And so we may be underestimating the influence of the sex of the recipient mouse when we do our experiments in immunocompromised mice. Couldn't you argue with the cell intrinsic uh, pieces that those that they were influenced in their gene expression patterns or epigenetics when they were in the animal by hormones? And so, yes, they're different in the dish, but that's left over from, so that it could have still been hormonal. And there's always difference in hormones throughout life between males and females. So... What about those kinds of arguments? So that's a great question. So two components to that question. Let me deal with the second one first. So in fact, um, during childhood, most of childhood, there's no difference in circulating sex hormone levels between males and females. So there's a surge around birth, and then obviously there's puberty, but in between there's very, very low levels. But the first part of your question, uh, having to do with sex hormone independence or not, there's two kinds of sex hormone effects. There's what we would refer to as the acute activational effects. So that's the effect um, in a premenopausal adult in which there are differences in circulating sex hormones, and those sex hormones are actively activating pathways uh, that differ then between males and females. And there's the epigenetic or organizational effect of sex hormones. So the most profound element of this is what happens in utero when you pattern a male fetus as male as compared to female in response to testosterone, or at puberty when you develop secondary sex characteristics. Those those features are stable regardless of whether you continue to express sex hormones, right? You're, you're born as, uh, under normal circumstances, phenotypically male or female as a reflection of whether or not you have an X and a Y or two X chromosomes and whether or not you have testes or ovaries. But in fact, um, you could uh, go and adectomize a mouse after birth and they're still recognizable as male or female, um, even though they have no circulating sex hormones. Those phenomenon are sex hormone dependent, but they're not acute sex, they're not influenced by acute sex hormone action. And the question you're asking is an incredibly important one. When we talk about cell intrinsic sex differences, are we talking about the consequence of the difference in sex chromosome complement, XY versus XX, or are we talking about the epigenetic or organizational effect of, of in utero sex hormones? And you know, I should say that the astrocytes we use are astrocytes that we collect right after birth in the mouse pups. So whatever, as you said, whatever their characteristics are, it's either a consequence of their sex chromosome complement or what happened in utero. So we can actually distinguish between those in an experimental model um, known as the four core genotypes model. Um, this is a mouse model to look at the relative contribution of chromosomal uh, sex versus gonadal sex. 
And the way it works is SRY gene, which is the testes determining gene, and which is sufficient to produce testes, and then the testes produce testosterone. The SRY gene has been deleted from the Y chromosome, and it's been cloned onto an autosome. So now you can get four different kinds of mice. You can get a mouse that's XX and SRY negative, so that's a mouse that's chromosomally and gonadally female. You can get a mouse that's XX SRY positive, that's a mouse that's chromosomally female but gonadally male. You can get XY SRY positive, that's chromosomally male, gonadally male or XY, SRY negative, chromosomally male, gonadally female. We're just in the process of mixing our tumor model, tumor models at this point, with the four-core genotype model to ask about um, which of these processes is establishing the difference in um, the, the cancer character of the male and female cells, which will be part of getting at what the organizing effects are for the difference in enhancer usage and all the other things that we've been measuring. That, that's mind-blowing and fascinating, <laughs> just trying to wrap my, my head around the complexity of that. But, but it does go to, uh, to a question that I had. Undoubtedly, th there are going to be some components of this which we see from an epigenetic standpoint, because as you pointed out, the, you know, in our children who are prepubertal, uh, there's no significant difference in their circulating sex hormone, but there is a difference in, in outcomes to a certain degree. So epigenetics... The, it's the, the modifications that are done to the genome that determine which genes are more likely to be on or off. Uh, are, there, are there medications that we can use to convert the cancer cells from male to female, so to speak? Uh, he's getting into the therapeutic implications yeah. of these findings. And, that, and that, it's exactly that. Because, you know, like for, for, I can understand it for our families, you know, it's like they may in one hand be saying, okay, well, we're resigned to the fact that because we have a boy that our patient may be uh, less likely to do well, but is that the case? So, great question. <laughs> I think there's there's two parts to the answer. You know, could you change the phenotype of a male cancer to be more female-like so that it was easier to treat? Right. But the second part of the question... Sex change on the cancer. On the, on the, <laughs> cancer, on the cancer only. On the cancer <laughs> only. But while that would be great for the excess number of males that get the cancer and the excess number of males that die from the cancer compared to the females, it doesn't improve at all the condition for the females with the sure. cancer. So I think that what you're describing is, a, is an important goal, but I would hope that the work we're doing actually would ultimately lead to better treatments for both males and females. And I just sure. want to make that point that this work is not about just simply trying to make the Turn males, males as good females. as females. <laughs> um, it is ultimately about improving outcome for both. But in regard to your question, I think this is where drugs like um, JQ1, which um, we mentioned, ultimately have part of their role. If you can erase the epigenetics that drives the more severe cancer phenotype in males and feminize them, mm -hmm. basically, could you combine JQ1 then with standard chemotherapy and get a better response from males, I think is a fantastic question. And it's one that we're actively looking at. Well, it may also be that the... Um the pathways that are involved in cancer and drug resistance, et cetera, 
sh- are shared in both and just worse in males. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. you therapeutically target them, maybe you'll improve both. Right. It is. Right. And and I think that that's true. And uh, as I said, ultimately, I, I hope that that will be the case. A really fascinating topic. We've already gone over half an hour. We like to <laughs> usually limit these to around then so they're, uh, you know, digestible. Uh, but um, I, I guess... What kinds of advice might you have for junior faculty, young scientists, trainees? You know, you've clearly found a niche here, and it seems like you found it in fellowship or, you know, in your project that you've blossomed into, uh, you know, a huge area and, and, and an important area and lots left to go, obviously. You probably mentioned about five different R01s <laughs> you could write during the course of this podcast. So, I mean, do you have... Obviously, so finding a niche is an important thing for people. But you know, what what, what sort of lessons have you learned along the way? And is, is there anything you do differently in the course of your career so far? Yeah. So let me answer each part of. We that. don't ask simple <laughs> questions here on this podcast. <laughs> At lunch with your fellows today, I was asked a similar question, and I answered in the way that I typically do, which is that. As much as I'm enjoying talking to you guys today and as excited as I am about the work that we're doing, the day-to-day in the work, the day-to-day of trying to get funded and trying to get published and trying to do everything else that we do... Um, You're bringing us all back down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know that. <laughs> ...can be pretty demoralizing. And if you're not doing something that you really love to do and you're not doing something that you really think is important, I don't know how you (laughs) get yourself through those periods. So, you know, my first advice is always about do what you love and do what you think is important Um, because much of the time you're going to be struggling. <laughs> so, <that's laughs> so you're saying we got to see a selection today of your work? Exactly. <laughs> there, um, there is a Darwinian nature to science as well, it would seem. <laughs> there is. You know, I have actually thought about are there things that I would do differently? And the answer to that is yes, definitely. I think I wasn't... I'm going to say courageous enough because I think that's what I actually mean when I was younger with regard to doing experiments, particularly learning techniques and approaches that were well outside my comfort zone. I don't do that anymore. I go headfirst into anything and, um, and encourage the students and postdocs in my lab to do the same. But the reason I do that is I really think that if you only go looking the way that you know how to look, you're only really going to find the things you could probably already have predicted you were going to find. That there, there, is, um, there is a need to kind of be courageous about this. And you know, the first person who made me think this, honestly, is Steve Lesnick. <laughs> so Steve was visiting WashU as he said, to kick the tires <laughs> a number of years ago. Not and meaning that he drove there. <laughs> um, and he was describing work that, that he was doing at the time in Utah. And I was so impressed with the way that he had simply followed the logic of his science without any regard to what it required to do that. It was just, <laughs> this is what I had to do next. And so... 
I learned how to do it, and I did it. And um, I've known Steve, as you know, for a long time uh, and hadn't seen him in a number of years when he gave that talk. And I just remember thinking, wow. It takes guts a bit. It does. <laughs> it takes guts, and I admire that. And, um, and you have to inspire that in your students, mm-hmm. too. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> you do. And, and I think you have to model that for your students, yeah. actually. And I think I, I learned that a little late. And I, I wish, you know, particularly because I was in Boston. I was in Boston at the time that Todd Golub first reported Gene Array um, analysis. You know, I didn't embrace that. Why didn't I embrace that? <laughs> you could have been so far ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, we all have regrets, I guess, or hindsight. Um, any other final questions or thoughts or comments? Anybody? Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you. being here. It's been yeah. a pleasure. Yeah. It's We've been enjoyed been having you. So Absolutely. great meeting you guys. Yeah, you have a wonderful thing going here. Thanks. It's I been mean. a lot of fun to, <laughs> to see you, to, you know, get everybody together and try to do things as a team. I mean, can't do things individually. You showed a long list of people on your slide, and you need teams not just in your labs, but collaborative teams to work together as our theme, as our closing theme goes. <laughs> so for those listeners, we'll be happy to read your emails during a future podcast. We read one recently and had a nice discussion about that. So we appreciate comments and questions sent to us at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. Uh, thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donald Lidwinski, our executive producer, and Cindy Camel, director of communications, and to Scott Kennedy and John London, founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening this week in Pediatric Oncology.